1: This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop
0: Inventing Podcast.
1: Do you have to be an engineer to make robots? Are there any advantages to growing up on a farm? How hard is it to build a life-sized R2-D2 robot? Keep listening for a little curiosity satisfaction. Normally on the Tabletop Inventing Podcast, we are discussing some form of inventor or innovator. And today is no exception. But for most of us, the word farmer does not really bring up images of innovation. But that would be a grave mistake. Some great innovations have come from the farm. Every star in Hollywood looks great because of a gentleman named Eli Whitney. And if you visited a farm and got to drive one of those huge tractors, you would discover that on board are sophisticated GPS systems, computers, and great air conditioning. Today's guest brings a blend of down-home wisdom and high-tech curiosity. He even mentions one of my favorite electronics platforms, Arduino. Let's find out how Michael McMaster went from farm boy to sci-fi robot builder. My guest today is Michael McMaster. Michael describes himself as a robot building citrus farmer. He recently had the opportunity to drive the real R2-D2 robot, For the Star Wars premiere, he is also a pilot. Michael has a lot of interesting things that he's done, and we're going to jump into that in this episode. So, Michael, tell us a little more about yourself.
0: Hello. First off, thanks for having me on your program. Yeah, I grew up born and raised on a citrus farm. Family has 90 acres of citrus. My grandparents bought the property, the first 10 acres that the house sits on back in 1919. So, we've been in the same spot for nearly 100 years. And I got the robot bug as a kid, you know, watching television programs and old uh, sci-fi movies, always was hooked on movie robots. And in 2001, I joined the R2-D2 Builders Club. I was surprised to find uh, there was actually a club for such a thing. And it was a worldwide club. At the time, only had a few hundred members. I think now we're up to about 16,000, 17,000 members in over 40 countries worldwide. But I started building an R2-D2, really dove in in 2002, and finished the first R2-D2 in 2004.
1: So what's involved in building a robot like that? Do you have plans? Do you go out and download those from somewhere? Or how does it go?
0: Right. Yeah, I joined the club. My initial search, I was trying to find photographs or any documentation on R2-D2 and discovered that the R2-D2 Builders Club actually had a set of plans that they had made uh, they were very basic, you know, nothing uh, too advanced. It was just based on guessing and a lot of photos, things like that. Over time, the uh, blueprints developed into um, something a little more sophisticated. We were fortunate to have some of the folks that worked at ILM as model makers. A lot of them worked on R2D2. They joined the club under uh, assumed names and <laughs> to correct some of our errors and eventually let us actually go to the archives and measure things. And so now we have a very accurate set of blueprints.
1: How did this club get started? I don't know anything about the history, and how old is it?
0: The, the club was founded in 1999 by an Australian named Dave Everett. And uh, Dave, like the rest of us, was just wanting to, to build an R2-D2. We're all very close in age. And, you know, he grew up with the movies, loved the robot, loved the character, and uh, all he wanted to do was build one. He searched the Internet, couldn't really find any information. Of course, you realize the Internet was quite a bit different in 1999. He formed this club thinking, well, maybe we'll have four or five people on, and it'll be just kind of a fun thing to do. Just within a year, he had hundreds of members all over the country, uh, all over the world, actually. Australia, the U.K., um, Germany, France. Uh, United States. uh, A lot of members just early on. Canada, a lot of Canadian R2 builders in the early days. Uh, It evolved from that.
1: Have you always been like an engineering type? You describe yourself as a robot building citrus farmer. Do you have like engineering the background back there? Tell us a little bit about how you got into the robot thing.
0: No, no engineering experience per se. No formal education, I guess you could say. But I did grow up on a farm and I knew how to weld my dad was sort of a, a do-it-yourselfer and probably my biggest inspiration. He built his own house, you know, the house that we currently live in. Uh, he built in the 50s. He built most of his farm equipment out of necessity. You know, he didn't have much money, and so the only way he could build tooling and tractors and whatnot that he, that were very specific to his needs, like I said, he made. So I got the bug, and over time I built a lot of farm equipment for him, you know, built my own office, you know. And it's just, I think that do-it-yourself bug I was bitten early.
1: If we just backed it up to maybe being a student back in in grade school, what kinds of things did you do on the farm, you know, as you were growing up?
0: Oh, my gosh. Living out in the country, you know, and this is before internet and cell phones and all that, so, you know, you play outside and use your imagination quite a bit, running around playing with sticks, things like that, but you know my dad would always be working on farm equipment so i would basically sit there and i had a lot of time on my hands no other kids in the neighborhood the nearest kids lived about a mile away so i just observed you know my dad was a very patient man and i had a lot of questions for him and he was always willing to answer questions and explain how things worked and why things worked the way they did and of course i built a lot of things out of wood and and uh, you know made models and cardboard robots and spaceships out of orange crates and things like that Yeah, it was a lot of fun.
1: So where did you learn all that from?
0: Uh, Just by doing. We had a lot of books. And like I said, just watching others build things. You know, I didn't have the internet to to dive into like I do today. You know, I just asked a ton of questions. And it was always, you know, well, how does this work? And a lot of cases, I would take things apart. I would get, like, I remember I had a pedal-powered fire truck. And I was curious about how the crank and the bearings and all that went together. My dad said, well, here's a wrench. So I took the thing apart almost put it back together (laughs) not quite (laughs) but i i I vividly remember that and remember the experience of just it was so much fun building something and figuring out how things worked as i got older of course i helped him work on farm equipment Uh, in high school i took several machining and welding classes he would hit me up he bought a welder once he knew i i understood the the basics of welding he said well here let's get a welder and so then he threw me into the fire, so to speak, and I started building all types of farm implements for him. Anything that he could dream up, I would build. You know, got to the point where we, we had some pretty interesting machines, tree toppers and spray rigs and all kinds of things that I built for him.
1: So, I'm listening to you and thinking back, because I did some of the same kinds of things, only I didn't have the benefit of growing up on a farm. I We grew up out in the country, but, you know, I took apart my motorcycle and almost got it back together like three or four times before my dad told me to stop taking it apart, Um <laughs> I wasn't as quick as you were because I think it was college before I actually started getting things back together on a regular basis. I mean, I kind of learned to weld in high school, like you did. So, what did you end up doing with all that? As you know, as you move forward past high school,
0: well, you know, it was once again just continuing to advance my knowledge. You know, as we got into building larger machines like tree toppers and things, you know, I had to learn a little bit about hydraulics, gearing, and, and things like that. Of course, I had an electronics class that I had taken in high school, and I really didn't do much with that information for quite some time until I got into this robot building. Well, I guess prior to building the R2-D2 in 2001, I got into um, remote-controlled gliders, uh, these two-meter electric gliders. So I learned a little bit about remote controls and electronics through that experience. Because R2-D2, you know, at the end of the day, it's... Not really that sophisticated as a robot. It really is just a remote-controlled wheelchair, and so it, it's pretty basic. Um, although now, you know, we're trying to get into more of the advanced robotics, a lot of pre-programmed routines and things, um, which we first started exploring when we built Wally, where we have sounds and things that are triggered, and, and we have oh, on the front of Wally, there's a solar charge level that um, initially you press a button, it lights up and does all the the sounds. But then it reverts to an actual charger or, excuse me, a battery monitoring device. So we're slowly learning. I'm trying to learn Arduino. You know, it's been a a slow process, but really exciting, you know, because the hardware is relatively inexpensive. And there's so many examples on the Internet. I mean, the Internet has really just opened everything up for me. You know, there's so much information, YouTube videos, and anything that I don't know. I can either go back to the R2 Builders Club. Find somebody who's an expert in a specific field and pick his brain or her brain or, like I said, rely on uh, YouTube videos.
1: I love Arduino. So how did you get into that? I mean, was that just as a result of trying to automate things?
0: Yeah, the, the first thing I wanted to automate, um, I had been puppeteering. There's a little hollow projector on the front of R2's dome that moves around a little bit. You know in the movies, Kenny Baker was inside the robot and it literally just had a little knob and so he could move it around just randomly from time to time. And I had a switch on the remote, so I could just switch over to to those servos and then just kind of jog it around with the stick a little bit. but I, I really wanted something more random. and one of the other builders, uh, first time I had even really heard about Arduino, he says, oh yeah, I've got this this board you know inside the dome and it's just randomly moving the holo projector. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And he said, yeah, go to Radio Shack and pick one up. And, I mean, the board was relatively inexpensive. He had the code for it. And he said, yeah, there are all these examples of code on this website that he directed me to. And so the very first one I downloaded was just to randomly move two servos. Downloaded it right to the board, plugged in my servos, and it was like a little miracle. Wow, this thing, you know, works right off the bat. And then I can go and fine-tune it because I didn't really, you know, had no real programming experience but once you have the, the code, you can go back and look at it, and you can start setting, you know, you have all these variable rates. And it's just playing with it. You kind of learn by doing.
1: You've said that a couple of times. Tell us a little more about that learning by doing. I mean, do you think about that, or is that just something you do? Is that something your dad told you? How did you come to that?
0: I guess those of us that are just curious, you know, you just you either find a book and read about it. And some people, I've noticed this too, that that especially in our group, it's such a diverse group of uh, robot builders some can um, pick up a book and read it, and they've got it. I'm much more of a hands-on. You know, I need to physically have my hands on something and, and you know work it over. And Some things I pick up faster than others. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, just I guess anybody that has a natural curiosity will gravitate towards that.
1: So in the robot club, do you guys have other engineers in there, or is it mostly just hobbyists like yourself? Who makes up that group?
0: It, you know, recently we did a poll. We started out by age, you know, what we're, were the age group. And, of course, there are a lot of folks that were, you know, they're all over the board. I mean, we have, you know, from teenagers all the way up to folks in their, you know, late 60s that are building these robot replicas. But we started asking the question, well, what do you do for a living? And it was really funny because it is wildly diverse group. We have airline pilots, dentists, a lot of IT guys. They, they <laughs> take that as you will teachers, lawyers, uh, farmers, just, you know, practically any any background you can imagine. It's just a, this character, for whatever reason, is just really popular and really calls to people. You know, the R2Builders group's been so encouraging because we tell people, you don't need to have a, a background in construction or engineering or electronics or welding. I mean, you know, you can make it out of any material you want. I've seen guys that have built complete robots that are probably they've got twenty thousand dollars Seen guys build them in a month out of styrene and, and paper for five hundred bucks so you know it doesn't matter what your skill sets are if you're willing you can learn that's probably the best advice you know that if you're really interested in something just dive right in you'll make mistakes along the way but you learn from them even the mistakes you know i've made a ton of mistakes building these things you certainly don't forget the ones that cost you a lot of money or time or maybe, uh, <laughs> of uh, a <meat. laughs> You know, find a group that has the same interests. You know, they're just, they act just like a support group. And it, it's so nice to have people with the same interests that are so encouraging and kind of rooting you on because everybody wants to see you succeed in the group. That really helps.
1: So you said. You know, if you're willing, you can learn. Have you always found that you're willing to learn? Is that something that just sort of was baked in early, or is that something that you kind of developed over time?
0: Certainly, certainly willing to learn if it was something that interests me. I, I was not the best of students in school, and looking back, I think the things that I was maybe perhaps bored with, I, I didn't put in the effort that I should have, and regret that a little bit, certainly. But, yeah, if it was something that piqued my interest, I was in 110%. And I guess I've always just had that inclination.
1: So you're also a citrus farmer. We've sort of touched on that around the edges. Tell us a little bit about what is the citrus farming business like?
0: It can be challenging. You know, you're your own boss, so you have to be self-motivated to a certain degree. And I I suppose we always joke about this, that farmers are really optimists because, you know, every year is a gamble. You never know how it's going to wind up. You know, we've had quite a few challenges just in the recent years with the the water situation. And so, you know, it's not necessarily for sissies. (laughs) You you, You know, there are a lot of ups and downs, but it's also very rewarding. You know, like days like today, it's an absolutely spectacular day outside. And so it's just so nice that I can work out there on my own set my own pace to a certain degree. I mean, there's always work to be done. But it's also given me the flexibility to do these other jobs. You know, if if Disney calls and they need me to do something with a robot, you know, I I do have a certain degree of flexibility that perhaps other people don't, you know, that work a a 9-to-5 job. It's been very rewarding and it's more uh, less of a career, I guess, more of a lifestyle, you might say. I just like to work outside. Every day is a little bit different. You meet so many interesting people. It's just a lot of fun.
1: So what's your favorite part of this the citrus business? Are you a farmer? Is that technically the right term?
0: Yeah, I'm a farmer. I really like all of it. I mean, I I just enjoy the fact that I roll out of bed. I don't have a commute. There are some days where the work is really hard, but still gratifying at the end of the day. You may come in exhausted, but satisfied that you've done something worthwhile. And of course, we're feeding people. That's kind of a nice thought. It's always nice when you get a paycheck. <laughs>
1: some some portion of our listeners will be uh, nine to five, and some portion of our business or our listeners will be business owners. But for those who aren't business owners, pull back the curtain a little bit about what's it what's it like to run a business versus getting a steady paycheck.
0: Yeah, there's there's so much involved. I mean, you have to deal with not only the day to day operations of the farming, but um, in this day and age, there's a, a an incredible amount of paperwork. You know, I spend more time now doing paperwork than ever before you know you have to worry about crop insurance and you know you have what we call gap audits now Um, it's so that you can trace the the food back to not only the packing house where it was packed or even the grower but the actual block we keep records on everything now whether it's pesticide use water use you know, we, there's a lot of monitoring that goes on. Of course, you're always looking, in, in our case, you know, you're monitoring for insects, beneficial insects, invasive insects. You're looking ahead through a whole season. You know, how much money do I have? You know, what's my budget for the year? You know, how much can I spend on water, on fertilizer, if we need to replant trees, put in new irrigation systems? You know, you're, you're mapping out a budget maybe for the next 18 months to 24 months and then hoping at the end of the year that you've grown a crop that is suitable to be harvested and will make some money, and that you'll have enough money to farm the next year. So it's sort of a roller coaster ride, and it can be very stressful for someone that hasn't had to do all of that in the past. You know, it's it's a little different than just going to a job, getting a paycheck, coming home. I mean, it's seven days a week, 365 days out of the year.
1: So what's the most challenging part of... Your sector in the farming business,
0: oh gosh, there's so many things um, you know, certainly trying to decide when you're replanting which crop you know we're we're very diversified at one point, we had fourteen different citrus varieties, and the market is constantly changing, so when you replant, you put a new tree in the ground, you're not going to get a crop, a marketable crop on that tree for about seven years. So you're trying, when you plant a new tree, and it takes two years to grow the tree, so you're trying to look out and decide what the market will want in the way of produce a decade from now. You know, So you're, you're just taking this wild guess based on trends in the market and trying to decide what I plant today, will it be profitable 10, 20 years from now? So that's probably the most challenging part, is just trying to... Um, outguess the market a little bit and decide what consumers will want in the future.
1: So the mathematician and physicist in me is curious about how do you do that kind of forecasting? Is, are there some typical formulas you use? Is there is this more of a psychological profile on the society? How how do you make those kind of choices?
0: What it is now? I'm I'm a sunkissed grower, and so we actually talk to their marketing teams. They have annual, biannual grower meetings you can go and talk directly to the folks who are selling the fruit and say, well, what what is the trend right now? What is it people are asking for? For instance, right now the hot thing are are mandarins, clementine mandarins. Sunkist has just a small foothold in that market. And so, you know, we talk about that. And right now Sunkist is asking us, you know, anybody that can plant a certain variety of mandarin, you know, by all means do that because we'd like to expand that market. So, I listen to them, and, you know, we go out, we'll purchase trees for a specific variety if they're asking for it. At the same time, conversely, they'll come in and say, you know, we see this other market slowly declining. Um, It might be a a grapefruit variety or some other, uh, you know, orange variety, and they'll say, you know, each and every year, this market is shrinking by 5% or 10%. So you can see the writing on the wall. So it it helps us decide which groves should be removed. You also decide, you know, when a grove gets to a certain age and it's no longer producing the way uh, it used to, you know, you realize you've got to get the grove out and get it replanted. You you can't wait until a grove is completely unproductive and you've run out of money, so you're also playing that game a little bit where you're trying to uh, decide at what point do you pull the plug on a certain variety, and it's either market-driven or perhaps, you know, the grove is just aging out
1: so how much data do you keep on that again the, the mathematician in me is wondering like do you weigh the number of uh, tons of fruit for each grove and then divide that by the number of trees how do you factor those things
0: Well we uh, every time you harvest a grove it uh, goes through a packing house and you have x number of cartons that are harvested per acre and so you'll see those trends <clears throat> once the production starts to decline you know just fewer Cartons per acre, and it's real easy math, and and you know exactly how much you're making per carton. You know exactly how much per acre it costs to farm, and so you you very rapidly will see the trend when you start heading in the wrong direction. Once again, it's just record keeping and analyzing the data. Some growers will will graph all of their data. Um, I haven't quite gone that far, uh, but I do have record books where I, I say, okay, we made so much acre on this grove now we're making this much you know the production is dropping on this grove sometimes we'll go in and rehabilitate the groves do some you know heavy pruning and some other things we'll wait two or three years to see if that picks up production if it doesn't then uh, you call the bulldozer and start over
1: again sorry the mathematician in me can't help this because uh I, I think about data quite a bit one of the things i do is research and in research, you spend time asking, well, is that a trend or or is that just a random fluctuation? How many years does it take for you to know in a particular grove whether it's in decline or whether that was just a bad year?
0: Yeah, you'll you'll see a steady decline. If you just have a bad year, the following season, you'll see the thing rebound. You, know, you see a freeze, for instance, and you, know, uh, you wait to see how the trees recover. And that usually takes two years before you really see the thing bounce back. But typically, if you just have a a poor year, uh, for whatever reason, the following season, you'll watch it closely and see if it does come back up. If each and every year you see a slow decline, you know, once again, it's just quite obvious. You know, you just have to make the decision on on how far you want to stretch that out before you uh, are no longer profitable. And Obviously, you don't want to wait till you're in the hole, so to speak, with a, a particular grove. So... You know, you give it two or three or four years, and then make the decision.
1: I have about a dozen more questions that I think I'm just going to put on hold because I like to. I'd like to just take this to the educational turn on this because we always like to get down to some of your experiences and perspectives on education. So one of the things we usually ask is, in the digital age, and you have an interesting perspective on that, having come kind of to the electronics thing a little uh, late in life and then using the Internet a lot to do research on your uh, robot designs. But with the Internet out there, what does it mean to be educated now? Like, what does that term educated mean?
0: Boy, that's a tough one. My wife is uh, studying to be a teacher, and, you know, we've noticed some trends in in public education which concern me a little bit as far as maybe less trying to educate children and more or less trying to get them to pass exams and I think some of the critical thinking has gone away a little bit you know once again like I said I'm one of those kids that would probably have been considered uh, ADD or whatever kind of a daydreamer uh, like I said I'm, I'm more hands-on you know in in uh, if I had grown up in this particular generation they probably would have medicated me and and who knows what you know your education I mean it's not just book learning, per se, but, you know, I know a lot of hands-on programs. You know, I went through a lot of the vocational programs in high school, whether it was uh, automotive shop or machine shop, welding, um, some of the ag sciences, and uh, everyone learns differently, and no two kids are alike. So, you know, what may work for one child may not work for another. So, education, um, that's sort of a broad term.
1: Well, I like that you you brought up some of the soft styles of learning, and you mentioned a lot of different types of learning throughout your experiences, from learning things in the farm and building custom you know, farm equipment to your hobby with being an engineer without an engineering degree. Those are not skills necessarily that you picked up straight out of school, although maybe you know some of the things you learn in school contributed a little bit, but the actual learning process appeared outside the classroom, and I like that you tied those together in your definition of education. So, the last question we like to ask is a little more philosophical, and so you can uh, get ready to be Aristotle or Socrates on this. What is the purpose of an education? Why do we educate kids in our society?
0: Well, you have to have educated children be successful in life in general. Too often, you have folks that are maybe—I uh, don't want to word this. Got to be careful. You know, maybe perhaps close-minded. You know, you need to get the larger worldview, I guess. We were involved heavily with our our high school band program. And we would do a lot of these field trips to the East Coast, Pacific Northwest. And these are kids that otherwise would have never left the local community, which, you know, Porterville. I noticed for a lot of these kids, it dramatically changed their view of the world. Just getting out of the, the local area, out of their comfort zone, and experiencing other cultures, other, you know, um, economic backgrounds. I mean, these kids, for some of them, they've really gone on, because we were, our kids were in the band, between all three kids, they were in the band for over 10 years. And we've seen some of these kids go on to do great things, and all of them reference back to the fact that, you know, that one band trip made such a difference. So it was, it you know, I mean, I realize just a, a formal education is important, but also... Getting kids out of their comfort zone, getting them to explore the world maybe in a little different angle, you know, is really important. Unfortunately, we see a lot of those programs, you know, a lot of the arts going, falling to the wayside. But, um, you know, some of the arts, they require math and science, certainly work parts of the brain that uh, stimulate parts of the brain that otherwise would not be. I suppose I'm, I'm... a supporter of, of anything that encourages children to go out and explore
1: we don't often get that response in fact I'm thinking back to see if I can remember someone who's given the response of part of the purpose of an education is just to to offer new experiences You know, I would have to say that personally that's those are some of the things that made the biggest difference on me I mean I, I had the opportunity to go to Europe when I was a teenager you know and I've been out of the country a couple of times and I've uh, been to different parts of the country. Um, I have friends from, you know, from local areas where I have uh, stayed for, you know, periods of time. And there is a difference in the thinking when you've seen other things, you know, taking those band trips like you mentioned and taking students outside of their their comfort zones. That's a that's a really powerful experience. And I can't resist this. Uh, just one more question. Um, did you have experiences like that when, uh, you know, when you were a teenager or trying to make some choices about life?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, my parents did like to travel. They couldn't always afford to do elaborate things, but we, you know, I always am under the belief that it's not really the, um, you know, the, the the quantity, but maybe the quality <laughs> of the trips. And, uh, yeah, we went all over the country. And, you know, we drove and or flew occasionally. You know, those experiences certainly opened my mind to new possibilities, you know, meeting diverse groups of people. I mean, I... I'm kind of proud of the fact that today, I mean, we have a, a very diverse uh, group in, in our robot building clubs and in some of the other things that my wife and I are involved with. And, and uh, you know, it takes a little bit of that to, uh, like I said, open your mind to uh, all the possibilities. And I think sometimes people can be very, very close minded and, and um, perhaps book smart, but not necessarily understand <laughs> life in general I have some some friends that have you know phds that you know can hardly converse with people you know you got to get out there and, and communication is is a skill that i think um, the internet has opened up to a certain degree but also hampered you know with a lot of the, the shorthand and things that kids use I mean you know learning early on how to communicate with other people is such a a key thing and I think we fall short sometimes and in education, with te- giving children those particular skill sets.
1: Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking time to uh, help us understand the the farming business a little more, and for understanding the mind of a an engineer who, without an engineering degree, and how how you come to that knowledge. So, if uh, our audience is interested in reaching out and finding out more about the, this robot club or more about what you do, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you?
0: Yeah, they can uh, do an internet search for the R2 Builders Club. Um, we also have the Wally Builders Club. And there is a C-3PO Builders Group for people that are interested in that. They can also uh, find me. I have a blog, uh, McMaster Robots, as well as an Instagram, which is also McMaster Robots.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you, Michael, so much for taking some time to talk to our audience. That was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that.
1: I love learning about the unusual paths that some people take to success. Michael certainly has an unusual story with lots of opportunities for failure, getting back up again, and finding another way to try. Michael's experience with practical, hands-on learning on the farm just underscores again that the tabletop inventing classroom experiences, such as Inventor Camp, are an ideal place to start innovating. Head over to ttinvent.com, that's T-T-I-N-V-E-N-T and check out Inventor Camp to get your team started on their hands-on learning journey.